I have been concentrating for the last couple of years on preaching from the Old Testament because I eventually hope to publish a book of sermons about the Old Testament on the Old Testament. But I received in the mail uh, a few weeks ago a wonderful booklet guiding you through the Gospel of John during, I believe, Lent. And I was very impressed by that, and I thought I should probably try to get on board with that. So I'm going to preach uh, in a way that I haven't for a very long time. I'm going to preach on a whole chapter of the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter, probably the longest single dramatic unit in the New Testament. And because the sermon is going to be very long, I decided that I would quote the passage verbatim as I go along, instead of having the whole chapter read to you and then doing it all over again in the sermon. And so, let us all listen for the word of God. Lord Jesus, uphold me, I pray that I may uplift thee. This chapter can't easily be chopped up into components, although some have tried it. It builds from the beginning into a powerful climax, and if you mess around with it, that momentum gets lost. Still, we can say this much, The first part involves, the shorter part, involves an abstract theological discussion about blindness and then a healing. The second part, far more important, is a sustained drama in which various people play various roles with a build-up that draws the listeners into the action and finally requires of us a verdict. Please note the context. Jesus is coming out of the temple where he has been having a fierce dispute with the religious leaders, a dispute so bitter that some of them take up stones to throw at him. John indicates that Jesus was able to slip away for as other po- at other points in his ministry, his time has not yet come. As Jesus comes out of the temple, having faced these attackers, he is completely in possession of himself, utterly unruffled. That's the background of chapter 9. Here is the story of Jesus and the man born blind. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now notice that the very first sentence of this unit says that Jesus saw the man. This introduces the topic of seeing that dominates the whole chapter. 
Since God has al- since John has already introduced us in his prologue to Jesus Christ as the Word of God incarnate, we can say in a true sense that this whole story and indeed this whole gospel is about God seeing us. That's the primary fact. Jesus saw a man. The secondary fact is that the disciples also see the man, but in a very different way. They see him as an interesting theological problem to be discussed at a distance. The fact that the man was born blind raises a question about the old belief that misfortune is God's judgment on particular sins. Jesus dismisses that entire train of thought out of hand. It was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. I don't know what translation you have in your pew. I'm using partly uh, the Revised Standard Version and partly the translation of Raymond Brown, so you may find your translation somewhat different. Now, it's important to notice that the compassion of Jesus does not play much of a part here. It does in other stories, but not this one. John the Evangelist is shaping this narrative in a different direction. The man's blindness offers an opportunity, a predestined opportunity, it would seem, for the works of God to be revealed in him. So the purpose of the story is set forth at the beginning, and we are to understand that the works of God and the works of Jesus are one and the same. Jesus' next words are curious. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The shadow of impending death is already falling across the noonday of our Lord's ministry. Day comes with him. At his departure, it will be night. I love the old commentators. Is it all right if I quote John Calvin here? (laughs) Calvin Calvin writes that our Lord compares himself to the sun which lightens the earth with its brightness, but when it sets, takes the day away with it. Thus he means that his death will be like the setting of the sun. And, that he will, and not that it will extinguish or obscure his light, but that it takes away the sight of it from the world. At the same time, our Lord shows that when he was brought forth in the flesh, it was truly the daylight of the world. Having said this, the evangelist continues, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay. This seems rather primitive, 
not to mention unhygienic to us today. It's possible that John wants us to see how Jesus violates the Sabbath because kneading was forbidden on the Sabbath. But all through this tradition, interpreters have noted that in this action, the creator of the world, the one by whom all things were made, is stooping again to the dust from which the first human being was created in order to make a new humanity. Jesus then says to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now you would think that would bring us to the climax of the story as we marvel at this miracle. Many interpreters want us to praise the man for his willingness to obey the odd commandment uh, commandment of our Lord. But that isn't what John the Evangelist wants us to focus on. He's just getting started. The actual miracle occupies only one verse out of 41 verses in this chapter. The real drama begins now with verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen the man before as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He said, I am the man. Now, apparently, these neighbors had never had any meaningful contact with the formerly blind man. They refer to him as the man who used to sit and beg. No doubt they had occasionally thrown a coin in his direction as they passed by. They have never really seen him. The meaning of sight, you see, is already being ramped up. Is he the one? Some thought yes, some thought no. They hadn't looked at him attentively enough to be sure. These people who have never cared for the blind man as a person have some sort of stake in denying the power of the miracle. It's offensive to them. They keep their distance, suspiciously asking questions. They said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So they took him to the Pharisees. Now up to now, the blind man has been a blank a person upon whom God has acted. Now we are going to watch his character gradually unfolding. The unfolding of his character does not occur as he goes to the pool and washes. The unfolding of his character begins now. We should note that he has not a clue as to who Jesus is. He refers to him simply as a man called Jesus. 
All he knows is that he put clay on his eyes and told him to go wash it off. As far as the blind man does, knows, it might have been the clay itself that did the job. Well, the washing, that's important for the development of the story. At this interesting juncture, the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. Now, this was presumably intimidating. We always need to remember who the Pharisees were. We tend to think of them as hypocrites, but the fact is they were actually the, man who, the men, as you know, who were accorded the most respect in their community. Instead of enriching themselves by collaborating with the Romans, as the tax collectors and others did, they led lives of austere commitment to the religious law, and they were renowned for their learning. Picture the blind man then suddenly thrust before this august company of religious leaders. What standing can he possibly have in that company? He is illiterate. They are learned. He is dirty and disreputable. They are revered pillows of the community. Like all who were disfigured or diseased, he was under suspicion as a, an egregious sinner, whereas they were thought to be beyond reproach. It's the most unequal con confrontation that you can imagine. The, con the interrogation begins in a reasonably neutral fashion. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees asked the man how he had received his sight, and he said to them, shortening his account, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This is the second time the blind man has testified in this forthright way. He's a model of what Jesus counsels in the Sermon on the Mount. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He put on clay, I washed, I see. But this straightforward testimony immediately causes a division among the learned elders. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus cannot be from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Now the blind man obviously is observing this debate. The man who healed him clearly is a dangerous person to know. The blind man must have felt himself being drawn into a controversy of serious proportions. How easy it would have been for him to say, look, I don't know anything about this. I never saw this man before in my life, and I don't expect to ever see him again. I don't want any trouble. But he does not say that. When the Pharisees turn back to him and say ominously, what do you say about this man? The blind man says, he is a prophet. Now, this is quite remarkable. The title of prophet was one of rare honor, as you know, and there had not been many of them. In view of the fact that the blind man knows nothing whatever of Jesus except his name, this is a stretch. 
and the Pharisees know it. They become more determined to discredit the healing of the blind man and above all, to discredit Jesus himself. The Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents responded, we know that this is our son and he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He can answer for himself. This is a curiously evasive response. We don't know what the relationship of the son to the parents was at this point. But since he was a beggar, they obviously must have either cut their ties to him or else, very likely, they were impoverished themselves. In any case, they were afraid of something. In the next verses, however, John explains that it was not ordinary fear. The parents have somehow sniffed out the fact that Jesus, whoever he is, represents a serious threat to the ruling class. The evangelist therefore continues. His parents said this because they feared the Jews, the religious leaders, for they had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to the Christ, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore the parents said, he is of age, asked him, ask him. Now here, without a doubt, we see the conditions of very early Christianity, where those who were confessing Christ were indeed being expelled from the synagogues. They were being excommunicated, we might say. This story is not about Jews. This story is about the challenge to Christians in any time and in any place. We very often hold back from a forthright statement of faith in Jesus Christ, lest we be shunned. James Howell, the senior pastor of Myers Park United Methodist Church in Charlotte, recently told a funny story about carrying my book, which is called Not Ashamed of the Gospel, into a diner where he sat down at the counter and took my book, which has a bright red cover, and turned it over. so that no one could see the title. And then he thought to himself, not ashamed of the gospel, turned it back over again, and got into all kinds of unwanted conversations. <laughs> Sometimes I think it would be easier to face a judge and a jury than to declare faith in Jesus Christ at a sophisticated dinner party. At any rate, in spite of the parents' evasions, the Pharisees are still faced with the offending fact of the man's cure, and they have made no headway in their project of neutralizing Jesus. They summon the blind man for the second time, and by now they have settled their differences and have come to one mind. If the blind man's situation was scary before, 
it is ten times more so now. Imagine the man who scrubs the office floor being hauled before the whole corporation. The CEO leans forward and says to the janitor, we have come to a conclusion. Pretty scary. Give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now, this is the point of no return for the blind man. The Pharisees have pronounced their official decision, and furthermore, they pronounce it in the name of God. Who would know about God if not the religious leaders? We must understand how unequal this contest is. The blind man has no reason to think that these godly men might be wrong. All he has is a tiny fragment of knowledge about Jesus. In the face of utter condemnation, he doggedly clings to what he knows. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. It's a good bet, and this is an opportunity for evangelism, it's a good bet that 99 out of 100 people out there who love to sing Amazing Grace have no idea where these words come from or what they mean. The fact in itself might be an opening for some of us. I was blind, and now I see. This is the point at which it becomes obvious that this chapter is about something more than physical sight. Remember how Jesus said at the beginning of the chapter, I am the light of the world. The power and the truth of the blind beggar's simple statement, I was blind and now I see, is not lost on the Pharisees. They back away from it, shifting their tactics, changing the subject, trying to trip him up. They say to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, listen to the blind man's reply. Something or someone is making him strong. There is wit and insight here as well as strength. He snaps back at the Pharisees. I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, too, want to become his disciples? <laughs> at this, they turn on him furiously. You're the one who is his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. This is several things. For one thing, it's the last word in pharisaical clout. The scholars of the faith reach back into the arsenal of the tradition to grasp the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the smoke of Mount Sinai itself, where Moses spoke with God face to face and they bring it all down on the head of this seemingly defenseless beggar. But it is not the Pharisees who are catching fire. 
Indeed, they have made a fatal mistake by saying, we do not know where this man, Jesus, comes from. If we have been reading the Gospel of John from the beginning, then we already know how the entire structure is built around this very matter of where Jesus comes from. The lowly blind man is the one who is being seized by the flame of the gospel. He is the one who sees what the Pharisees do not see. He speaks now with a power far greater than himself. To the proud assembly of religious rulers, the blind beggar says, Why, this is a marvel. You, the leaders of our faith, do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This nameless nobody has reduced the Pharisees to sputtering impotence. They fall back on the old notion of blindness that Jesus has already blown out of the water. They fume, you were born in utter sin, you would teach us, and they cast him out. Out of their temple, out of the circle of decent people, out of the company of the righteous Outside the dwelling place of mercy and salvation. Outside. Outside. And now, writes John Chrysostom, Now to him who is thrown out of the temple comes the Lord of the temple. Upon him who has been cast into outer darkness now shines the light of the world. The evangelist tells us that Jesus, hearing that they had cast him out, came and found him. Close to the one who has been sentenced to a living death, intimately, personally close, comes Jesus of Nazareth to the outcast man. This is one of the great scenes in all the Gospels. The good shepherd has searched out this lamb of his own flock who does not yet even know who he is. Having found him, Jesus said, using the divine title, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? The blind man cannot yet know who this is who is speaking to him. He has not laid eyes on Jesus since he received his sight. But he instantly recognizes the presence of one who has authority that the Pharisees can only dream of. He who was so stubborn and so assertive before the Pharisees, immediately and humbly yields himself to that authority, saying, And who is he, sir? Tell me. Tell me that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. 
And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he bowed down to the ground and worshipped him. Back in verse 24, the Pharisees had said to the blind man, Give God the glory. Now at the climax of the story, he does exactly that. Jesus has revealed himself as the true light, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God. It is for this purpose that the blind man was given his sight, that he should recognize Jesus as the divine Son of Man and glorify him. Now, I'm sorry to tell you that the story isn't over yet. Out of that high note, we must return because conversion to Jesus Christ brings enemies. It seems that some Pharisees were eavesdropping on this conversation, and they hear the Lord say, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. The Pharisees said, are we blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. As Raymond Brown puts it, the chapter begins with a man who is going to be given the gift of sight. It ends with a sentence passed upon those who have refused to see. The Lord tells us that those who are truly blind are those who think they can see past himself. The story is not quite as inspirational as we would like to make it. Coexisting with the thrilling dialogue with the blind man who experiences increasing insight as the story unfolds, is the hardening blindness of the religious elite. <clears throat> On the one hand, revelation. On the other hand, judgment. To be confident of one's own righteousness and understanding is to be in darkness as were the Pharisees. To know one's right relationship to the Savior is to be drawn into the light. Three times in the dialogue, the Pharisees confidently state what they know. Three times, the blind man confesses what he does not know. Three times and three times. Spectacularly well-balanced story. As he bravely clings to the little light he has, the Lord gives him more light. Now, now we must decide, you and I, where we stand within this story. From the time of Augustine, interpreters have pointed out that the blind man stands for us all. He represents fallen humanity, lost in darkness without hope of salvation. As Flannery O'Connor insisted throughout all her work, we are all the poor, or we might say we are all born blind. 
But we are also like the disciples who discussed causes but cared nothing for the man. We are like the neighbors who resented the embarrassing intrusion of divine help into the life of a street beggar. We are like the parents who were afraid to make a public commitment. But most of all, we are like the Pharisees. Remember, these are not Jews. These are ourselves. It is hard for us to imagine ourselves as anything other than good people. As indeed, someday perhaps, the religious elite. Our commitment to our image of ourselves blinds us to the very presence of God in his Son. Now, up to this point, everything in the sermon could be addressed to a regular congregation of lay people. Now let us hear words addressed to a congregation of seminary students, preachers and teachers in training. What part do we play? Perhaps our greatest temptations, those of us who are studying for ministry and those who are already in it, ordained ministry, perhaps our greatest temptation is to be like the parents. The pressures today to pull back from a full-throated proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are tremendous. We don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue, so to speak. These are tremendous pressures on us. All the cultural trends, virtually all of them, are looming over us ready to judge us. What do we do? Being seized by this story, as by so many stories in the fourth gospel, means being engaged by a Lord who is living and proactive. What a great vocation we have, declaring the light of the world to those who have eyes to, to see declaring the incarnate word of God to those who have ears to hear. Woe to us if we hold it back. Wimping out means refusing the life of God among us in his world today. As John tells this story in chapter 9, the man born blind has four opportunities to wimp out with the threat escalating each time. The more escape hatches he was offered, the stronger grew his witness. Your ministry will be like that. You will find opportunities to wimp out in proclamation every day. Let the blind man be our guide. Let the fourth gospel teach us about the power of our testimony. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Lord, I believe, said the blind man, 
and he worshipped him. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me in the flesh and yet believe. And the disciple Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Lord Jesus Christ, be for us light and word, courage and power. Give us that which we do not have, the capacity to proclaim you as the Savior of the world and grant us the blessing of many who will hear and many who will see. In your blessed name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask it. Amen.